And this morning we're looking at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through verse 7. Once again, listen now to the reading of God's holy word. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinus was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Seek the Lord's blessing on this, his holy word. O gracious God in heaven, we... We do praise you and thank you for the truth of your word. And we're mindful that it is our only infallible rule for faith and life. And there truly is much here to believe and to even apply to our hearts and our lives. And so we just pray, Father, that you would give us the power of your spirit, wisdom and understanding. And that as your word goes forth that it would truly find within each of our hearts that rich and fertile soil which brings about great and abundant fruit for your glory, all to the praise of your holy name. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Well, today it's kind of difficult to think about the birth of Jesus without thinking of of twinkling lights and brightly wrapped presents and crowded stores. We're certainly told that Jesus is the reason for the season. And yet it can be a challenge to find Jesus, even to find the real Jesus, in the midst of both cultural and even religious traditions. And so this morning we want to consider the birth of Jesus more objectively, without all, the, without all the glitz and the glamour, and without all the emotional and sentimental attachments to tradition. But this is how the birth of Jesus is presented to us in the pages of God's Word. In fact, first of all, there's only two Gospels that record for us the birth of Jesus, although... We might uh, argue that the beginning of John's Gospel uh, at least tells us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But even as you read the passages of the birth of Jesus and the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of, of Matthew, you'll notice that when it comes to the actual birth of Jesus, the event is, is relayed very simply. Even as here in verse 7, that she brought forth her firstborn son. And that's it. Now there's certainly some fanfare uh, to follow when the birth of the Savior is announced to, uh, to the shepherds who are watching their uh, flocks uh, by night. But overall, 
It's pretty low-key, and certainly not all that's observed today. Now, this just because it's recorded in a very low-key uh, kind of uh, style, doesn't mean that the event of Jesus' birth was somehow unimportant. Of course not. It is, in fact, essential to our faith and our salvation. But again, if you read these birth narratives with, with discernment, and again, without all the, the distractions, you'll notice that traditions and, and carols and pageants have influenced, even, even clouded, our view of what really happened on that night in Bethlehem. And so this morning, we're, we'll try to clear away some of these extras as we consider the when, the where, the how, and the why of Jesus' birth. First, we consider the question of when. When was Jesus born? Well, to help us determine this, Luke actually gives us some several, uh, several clues. And the first is that it was during the reign of Caesar Augustus. Now, Augustus was the, the nephew of Julius Caesar, and he reigned from 27 B.C. to 14 A.D. He's often credited for bringing peace, stability, and, and strength to the Roman Empire. And so this then gives us a, a range of 41 years, right? Sometime in that 41-year period, Jesus was born. Well, then we have a second clue that helps us to narrow things down a bit. And this is that Luke notes for us is that Jesus was born during the time when Quirinus was governor of Syria. Now, though some extra-biblical records show that Quirinus was appointed to this in, in 6 AD, there are other records that indicate Quirinus was perhaps governor at a time prior to this, or at the very least, he was in some position of, of ruling or authoritative capacity in Syria sometime between 12 BC and 16 AD. And so if we knock off the two years that exceed Augustus' reign, well, that gives us a range of 26 years. Well, if we step outside of Luke's gospel for just a bit and consider what Matthew says about the birth of Jesus, we see in Matthew 2, it records the death of King Herod, which was after Jesus was already born. Remember, King Herod was the one who gave the decree that all the, uh, the infants in, uh, in the region, two years and young, younger, ought to be slaughtered. Well, extra-biblical historical records show that Herod died in April of 4 B.C. And so this then limits us now to eight years between 12 B.C. and 4 B.C. Well, when we jump back to Luke, we find another clue that narrows the time frame even further. And this was the census that was ordered by Caesar. This census or registration was likely uh, for the purpose of raising a tax on the people of the empire. Now we know from other historical records that such uh, uh, registrations were done on a 14-year cycle, with one being in 20 AD. And this then would mean that there would have been one in 6 AD. In fact, Luke mentions this census in 6 AD in Acts chapter 5. And it was uh, made mention and notable because the Jews rioted at the time of that census. Well, then if we go back another 14 years from 6 AD, that takes us to 8 BC. 
to what Luke calls here the first census. And so now we're down to a four-year span between 8 and 4 B.C. And most scholars will even shorten it further to between 6 and 4 B.C. And this is possible because it's likely that by the time the decree went out from Caesar Augustus and then reached all the people in all the towns and all the cities of the Roman Empire... And then the time it would take for all those people to make plans and and travel back to their cities of origin where they could be registered, it's likely that even though the decree went out in 8 BC, it may not have been uh, completed until a year or two later. And some even contend that Herod may have actually even delayed the census decree uh, in his region for political reasons. And so we have a range, then, of years for the timing of Jesus' birth between 6 and 4 B.C. But what we don't know is the exact year, the month, or the day in which Jesus was born. We know that December 25th was a day that was first appointed by the Emperor Constantine in the 4th century. Before that, the birth of Jesus wasn't really acknowledged much. And the, big, the reasoning for Constantine's appointment of this day was, the primary, primary reason was in order to replace a, a pagan festival that was during the same time. And again, if we look at what information the Bible does give us, it was most likely that, or more likely that Jesus may have been born actually in the spring or in the fall, since the shepherds were still had their flocks out grazing on the hills, which they wouldn't have been doing in December when there would probably be uh, snow on the ground and much colder weather. And so though December 25th is often observed as the birthday of Jesus, we know that it's not the actual day that he was born. And a lot of skeptics like to uh, jump on that, uh, but we need to uh, acknowledge that. Jesus was not born on December 25th. That's tradition. But the key reason that Luke mentions these officials and the census is not so that we can then guess at the date that Jesus was born. And, you know, people have a, a tendency like to guess things about Jesus and dates, right? They guess about the date he was born. They like to guess about when he's going to return. But Luke doesn't give us this information so that we can guess. No, he gives us this information to tell us that the birth of Jesus really and truly happened. That it was an actual event in human history, and you can look it up in the record books, just like all the other people in the events that he's here mentioned. It's, he's pressing the historical, uh, the historicity of the birth of Jesus, that it actually happened. And that's why he's tying it to all these other historical people and events. But there's also something else important to note about these historical figures and events. Not only do they confirm the historical fact of Jesus' birth, but in them we also see the sovereign hand of God working out his plan and purpose to bring this event about. And we'll give just two quick examples here. First, the fact that Jesus was born during the reign of Caesar Augustus. And again, this was during the time of what is often called the Pax Romana, the the peace of Rome. 
Right? It was a time in which Rome was, was basically free from the threats of major enemies. Now God's design for all this was so that Jesus would not only be born during such a period, since Jesus is, after all, the Prince of Peace, but also that the witness and testimony of His birth, of His ministry, of His death and resurrection, could more easily go forth. See, one of the reasons that the Gospel was able to spread so quickly was because the Apostles had great freedom to travel throughout the whole Roman Empire. So God had ordained for this time, for the birth of Jesus, as the right and the perfect time. And working out all these things, all these events, and who's reigning where, and and who's doing what, God has ordained it all. And this, that was the perfect time for Jesus to be born so that the gospel could quickly go forth. And we see that happening throughout the book of Acts and the, the rest of the New Testament. But secondly, we also see God's sovereign hand working through this very decree of Augustus. In verse 4, we're told that Joseph and Mary actually lived in Nazareth of Galilee, which is uh, to the north, uh, Bethlehem being... Uh, more in the south, closer to Jerusalem. But this registration decree would take them the 90 miles away to the place of Joseph's roots to the little town of Bethlehem in Judea. Friends, it wasn't for the purpose of a hymn that God ordained Augustus to call for this census to bring this particular couple to Bethlehem from Nazareth at this particular time. But it was for the fulfillment of God's promise to David and for the prophecy of His Word given hundreds of years before. Which then leads us to the question of where. Where was Jesus born? Well, He was born in Bethlehem. And again, first we we must remember God's promise to David, which is now fulfilled in the fact of Jesus being born in Bethlehem, a town that was called the City of David. In 2 Samuel 7, uh, we read this covenant promise that God makes to to David. I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. Now, especially after the Babylonian captivity, when Israel was no longer ruled over by a Davidic king, The Jews understood this promise made to David that it would be fulfilled by the Lord's anointed, the coming Messiah, who would be raised up to deliver them from their enemies and who would restore the glory of Israel. And it was this promise that Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, refers to in his prophetic praise after John was born and and his tongue was then loosed and he was able to speak when he was giving the the blessing to the people. Luke chapter 1 verse 69, And God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And so Zacharias, in the Spirit of God, is mindful of the promise that God had made to David, the covenant promise. 
And it was also this promise to which the angel Gabriel refers when he says to Mary in, in Luke 1 verse 32 that he will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. We see two things, two connections to this prof, this promise in in Second uh, Samuel seven. First, that he is going to be the the throne of his father David. Right, it's one of David's sons who's going to be sitting on the throne. But he's also called the son of the highest. And what does God say there in Second Samuel seven verse fourteen? I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And so Jesus would be the fulfillment. Of this promise. But how do we know this? How do we know that Jesus was even a possible candidate? Well in verse 4 it's noted that Joseph was of the house and lineage of David. And this will be confirmed in the genealogy of Luke chapter 3. And uh, one of the things we need to keep in mind, Luke 3 uh, gives a genealogy, uh, which is more of the legal genealogy of following uh, Joseph's line. Whereas in Matthew's, uh, I think it's Matthew 4, or Matthew chapter 2, we have uh, another genealogy. It's a little bit different, but it's often accepted that that's the, the genealogy of Mary. And it shows uh, that Jesus, his actual bloodline, back to David. Whereas uh, the genealogy here in Luke chapter 3 is the legal lineage to David. It's even though, it, because Joseph was the house of, and lineage of David, that he and Mary were traveling to Bethlehem to register. And even though uh, Joseph wasn't the biological father of Jesus, his family heritage, again, provided this legal ancestry. So that Jesus would rightly be called a son of David. And of course, the fact that he's being born in the city of David, the city where David himself was born, only adds to the case that Jesus was coming in fulfillment of this Davidic promise. Now, for the location of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, it also fulfills a particular prophecy found in the book of Micah. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, Yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Well, of course, it was this prophecy that the Jewish uh, scribes uh, turned to when asked by Herod about the location of where the Messiah would be born. And then later, people would ask of Jesus and uh, John uh, 7, will the Christ come <clears throat> out of Galilee? They were saying, well, if he's claiming to be the Messiah. How? Wait, he's coming from Galilee. But then they go, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? Well, even some critics today will speculate that because Jesus is never called Jesus of Bethlehem, but he is usually referred to as Jesus of Nazareth, well then he couldn't be the Messiah. And that Luke and Matthew in their birth narratives were really just trying to impose these prophecies on Jesus. But friends, we all know that the place where you're born isn't necessarily your hometown. Besides, in this passage, we have the historical reason, right, the census decree, 
as to why a family from Nazareth would travel all the way to Bethlehem, even during a time when the wife was close to giving birth. Jesus could have been born in Nazareth, but he wasn't. It was God's decree, God's purpose and plan for him to be born in Bethlehem. And again, we see the sovereignty of God at work there. And so Jesus was born in Bethlehem to fulfill this prophecy of Micah. And he would be the great ruler of Israel who was from all eternity. And just after this, Micah continues his prophecy saying in verse 4, And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall abide, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And this one shall be peace. You see, it's Jesus Christ who came in the name of the Lord to bring peace between God and man. And so to fulfill, to fulfill this prophecy, and to fulfill the promise made to David, God appointed that His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, would be born in Bethlehem. Well, the next question we have to address is how, or in what manner, was Jesus born? Well, since the Messiah was to be the son of David, a a king, we might think that God would design that he would be born in a palace surrounded by wealth, comfort, and expensive gifts. Friends, this isn't what we find here in Luke. Jesus, though he truly was the Messiah, though he truly was the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, he was born under the humblest conditions. After making the long journey from Nazareth, there was no room to be found for Joseph and Mary. They had no place to stay. Likely because of the census, there were many uh, other out-of-towners in Bethlehem that, that overwhelmed the hospitality capacity. Now sometimes, the Bethlehem innkeepers kind of get a bad rap. Right? For, the, for being just kind of cold-hearted people who, who turn out a man and his, his, his wife who's greatly with child. And sometimes, you'll hear preachers build a whole sermon around the fact that, that there was no room for Jesus. And then they'll have this question, will you make room for Jesus? Or will you turn Jesus out like these cold-hearted innkeepers? Friends, such proclamations go far beyond what we're told here in the Scriptures. Luke just states the simplest, unbiased, and non-judgmental fact. There was no room for them in the inn. Now, if there's no room, there's no room. Now, what this does perhaps tell us is that Joseph and Mary were not rich, wealthy aristocrats who would have had no problem finding room, even if it meant paying someone a a rich sum to give up their space. But Joseph and Mary had no such financial means, and this is later confirmed when they uh, go on the day of presentation to the temple and present Jesus in the temple. And they give... The two, uh, uh, the, the the doves, right? Which was what the poor were to bring when they're at the time of the dedication. And so they were not wealthy. And so Jesus here was born to a poor family, 
And he was born not just to the poverty of Joseph and Mary, but he was born to the poverty, the spiritual poverty of humanity. Taking on human flesh. Becoming as we are. Except without sin. So finding no place to stay and knowing that Mary's time to give birth is getting closer, Jesus finds a stable, or at least a place where the animals are kept. Now, in modern day Bethlehem, you can go visit a site, the Church of the Nativity, which is said to be built around the cave in which Jesus was born. And it's complete with a marble floor and a bronze star that marks the exact spot where he was born. And you can, you can Google it, and you can see the gaudy, expensive items that are all around. It's like somebody walked in with a, a bag of sparkles, and they glitter and went everywhere. Certainly nothing like the day Jesus was actually born. And I'll say in connection to this, there's been a thing in the recent, uh, in the past week or so, <clears throat> all this talk about finding the burial place of Jesus' midwife. I don't, we don't read that Jesus had, maybe he did have a midwife, but we don't read it here. And I guarantee that this tomb will become an ungodly shrine to lead people astray from the truth of Jesus. And so it's not something to be excited about. It's, again, this is how the tradition clouds our view of what truly happened and what the scriptures reveal to us. Now back to the where Jesus was born. <clears throat> it's true that sometimes animals were kept in caves. But again, we're not specifically told that it was a cave or a barn or a lean-to, or an open square, or a part of the house where animals were kept. These, were all, these are all possibilities. We just don't know. Now, the only thing that makes us think that it was some sort of stable was because after he was born, where does Mary place Jesus? He places, she places him in a manger. A manger was a feeding trough for animals. Now, imagine how humiliating this would be. This is the king of kings. And in his bed is a place where animals feed. These were the conditions of Jesus' birth. A humble, meager, and lowly. And again, except for the, the shepherds who were alerted by the angel, and that was certainly would have been a glorious sight, but only seen by the shepherds, there seems to be no one else around. Right? No, the wise men don't come for another year or two later. Drummer boy, he's not there. All the sheep and lamb keeping time or wherever they... It's not given to us. The shepherds come. And they witness, but there seems to be no one else around. Jesus Christ, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, was born. And no one seems to care or notice. Now here we can draw a parallel truth. Friends, that unless the Lord draws them, unless the Lord reveals it to them, unless the Lord invites them, people will not come to the Son of God. 
the Lord must draw them and bring them and invite them. Now what makes this, these humble conditions so much more dramatic and offensive, again, is that this was Jesus. This was the eternal Son of God by whom all things were created and through whom all things continue to be sustained. It was this Jesus who was born into such humiliation. And though we often think of the suffering and death of Jesus at the time of, as the time of his humiliation, and certainly that's the, the pinnacle of his, of his humiliation, it actually starts right here at his birth. And this is why Paul says in Philippians 2 that he being the, in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation or humbled himself, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. The Son of God became a man. That's humiliating. And of course, with all the discomfort and the pain and anguish that a mother endures to bring a child into this world, this is what Mary endured when Jesus was born. We know that this because, again, the Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now what does it mean for Jesus to be born of a woman, born under the law? Well, is it not first that He was born of human flesh? To be born a son of Adam. And of course, to be born under the law is to be born under the curse God placed upon mankind for sin. And what was that curse? Genesis 3.16, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Now perhaps at some point, after his birth and after the shepherds returned to the fields, things quieted down. But because Jesus was born under the law, it was likely not to have been a very silent night when he came forth into the, from the womb. Well, this then leads to the final question. Why? Why was this all necessary? And of course, the first reason why is so that Jesus, the Son of God, might identify with us. And this, of course, should remind us of the Emmanuel prophecy of Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. And God has promised that he would be with us in a very special and an intimate way. And this was fulfilled when the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And God became man through Jesus. God was identifying closely with us in a way that He never had before. He personally would experience the pain, the suffering, and the humiliation that we experience as those who live in a fallen and sinful world. And the great comfort that we get from the incarnation, from the birth of Jesus, is that we now have a faithful high priest who is truly able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, who is able to identify with us, being tempted and tried in all ways that we are, yet, of course, without sin. Beloved of God, it's because of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, come in the flesh, that we can know and believe with all certainty that God knows our pain. 
He knows our suffering. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our poverty. Again, because Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus was born so that God could identify with us in our suffering. But Jesus came not only to identify with us, but to redeem us. As Paul goes on to say in Galatians 4, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And the way He redeemed us was by offering up His own life as a once-for-all perfect sacrifice for our sins. The curse of the law was death. And since it was mankind who sinned, God's justice demanded that a man must die, one for the many. No ordinary man, however, could bear the wrath and curse of God and the weight of the sins of the world. Only God could survive such a judgment. Only God could truly conquer the great enemies of Satan, sin, and death. And so the reason and purpose of Christ's birth is this. He was born not to be remembered as a, as a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. He was born to be betrayed. He was born to be falsely accused, to be mocked, and to be beaten, to be bruised, to be whipped, to be nailed through the hands and the feet, and to be crucified on the cross for our sins. All this is what we deserve because of our sin against the almighty living God who is holy, holy, holy. And yet while we were still sinners, and while we were enemies of God, God sent His own Son to be born like us so that He might die for us and secure the payment for our sins. And in power and might, God raised Him from the dead on the third day, leaving the tomb empty to show that He had truly conquered death and removed from His people the curse that that death, that sin had brought. That we were now no longer enemies of God, but that those who believe and trust in His name alone for salvation are called His sons and are adopted as His beloved children. Thus the birth of Jesus Christ ultimately points us to the great hope that is secured for us in His death and His resurrection. Jesus Christ was born, He was truly flesh and blood, and He endured great humiliation and suffering, even to the point of death on the cross for our sins. Beloved of God, let's not lose sight of this fact then. See, that we ought to remember the incarnation and the birth of Jesus, not just once a year, but every day that we live and walk in faith. And especially, we ought to remember His birth and remember His ministry and His death and His resurrection. We're called to remember this every week when we're gathered together on the Lord's Day to worship Him as our risen living Savior, as our Redeemer, as our Lord and as our King, as God Almighty.
as the one true living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The one who has graciously secured for us our salvation. The one who left behind His glory so that He could identify with us in our sin and our misery. Friends, this is the Savior we have. Let us rejoice and be glad. And as you remember this, not just today, but every day, truly, may God alone be glorified in you and through you. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, we praise you and thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we Thank you that you have given us your word to reveal us these truths. And even though there is much that is, is considered today that is, is uh, extra biblical and, and misleading about the birth of Christ. So we just focus on the truth that you have revealed. The purpose of why he came. And that he now lives. After enduring such humiliation, enduring the suffering and death on the cross, and then being raised in power on the third day, and now risen in glory where He reigns even now at your right hand, ruling and reigning over all things for the blessing and benefit of His people, the church, even us. And that He gives us now comfort. And we know that we have a God who truly is able to sympathize with us and encourage us and build us up who knows our pain and our suffering who knows our weaknesses because he was tempted and tried in all ways that we are yet without sin father we praise you and thank you that we have such a great high priest that we have such a precious savior and redeemer and that he is our lord and our king and so we pray father that we would always be mindful of his birth of His death and of His resurrection. And especially as we gather together on the Lord's Day, the day that You have given to us to call upon You with our hearts united together in a common faith in Christ, worshiping and giving praise for all that You have done for us. Father, we pray that You would continue to work these truths in our hearts, applying them to our hearts, drawing us all closer to Yourself. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.